Welcome to Say What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Today we take a deep dive with Professor Ray Hilborn from the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. We're taking a look at the new Netflix documentary, Sea Spiracy. You've probably heard of it. It is uh, making a pretty big claim about fisheries worldwide and how they are being depleted at an unbelievable, unthinkable pace. Ray has spent his entire career breaking apart data to show that fisheries are in fact sustainable and manageable, and he takes a deep dive with us here today on that subject. Ray is also one of the principal scientists at the University of Washington Alaska Fisheries Program in Bristol Bay. He's one of the folks that has taken care of me and introduced me to Bristol Bay while I've been up filming The Breach and The Wild, and he knows that place inside and out and gives us an example of why Bristol Bay is such a sustainable and regenerative fishery. Also, take note that we have brand new special Ray Troll Save What You Love t-shirts in the merch store. $5 from every one of these t-shirts goes back to the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust, managed by Ray Troll's brother, Tim, and it is used to procure land in Bristol Bay to preserve it in perpetuity. You can find those t-shirts at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. And if you're liking the show so far, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and writing a review and giving us a rating. It really helps lift us up and get us out into the world so we can keep this coming at you. Thanks so much. Take care. Enjoy the show. Dr. Ray Hilborn, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm so glad to see you. Missed uh, visiting up in Bristol Bay last summer. Obviously, we were uh, dealing with a pandemic. But um, fate has brought us together here again. Um, (laughs) I'm so glad you reached out. And I have since watched the film you asked me to watch that now apparently half the world has watched. And it's a, it's a Netflix documentary called Seaspiracy. We're going to get into all kinds of things today. We're going to talk about Bristol Bay. We're going to talk about how you got where you are right now. But let's just dive right into this film. I would just love your general take on this film and what it is claiming and your general view on how they presented their material. Well, I mean, it's it's not really a documentary. It's a propaganda film. Um, it's, uh, you know, the bottom line is it's arguing for a vegan diet uh, that, and saying that we should not eat fish at all because no fisheries in the world are sustainable. Um, it, uh, it's, it, it is totally distorts the real science that's out there. Uh, it does a disservice to, uh, to the whole world, whether you're talking uh, native cultures where, where fishing is, is part of their identity to the hundreds of millions of people who depend upon fish for, uh, for their food security and nutrition. Um, it, it's just outrageous uh, how badly done it is, but it's very effective. It's, it's attracted an enormous amount of attention. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit um, before the show, and you, you were telling me that, you know, clearly you guys at the University of Washington get a fair amount of traffic on your fisheries website anyways, but you said you've had a little bit of a spike recently. Yes, we have a we have a website that's designed to provide information on sustainable fishing and has been following you know, almost every issue that comes up from um, you know seafood mislabeling to how many fish stocks are sustainably managed and um, and our our number of visits we've had we've had 10 times as many visits in the first eight days of April as the average month for the last year. And uh, it's just astounding uh, how much interest there is. Well, you know what? We're going to dive into each of the segments Mm -hmm. um, that you and I have found uh, 
well, flagrant, if not objectionable, <laughs> in the Seaspiracy documentary. But um, I would love to know, and I'd love for you to share for our audience, um, tell us your story. Tell us how you uh, got to be in this field and how you ended up in Bristol Bay each summer. Oh, oh, it depends on how long you want to go. I mean, I I started out life as a terrestrial ecologist, did my PhD on uh, on rodents, and then started working for the Canadian government um, on a range of issues uh, in what was then uh, called fisheries and environment. My specialty was population dynamics, and it proved to be that the fisheries problems were the most interesting because... Uh, fisheries managers, this would be at the time largely salmon managers in Canada, were making decisions uh, every day on managing the fisheries and the kinds of tools I had in my toolkit were useful to them. So I gradually switched to uh, working on fisheries dominantly over time. And um, then when I came to the University of Washington in uh in 1987, uh, there was an ongoing research program in Bristol Bay, um, and I got invited to go up there, and uh, I was just blown away by uh, what a beautiful place it was, and uh, and it was one of the most interesting uh, fisheries in the world, and I, uh, at, you know, I said, I have to just stay involved in this. And except for pandemic year last year, I've been going up and doing field work and teaching courses there every year since, uh, since uh, I guess, 1995 is my first year I went up with University of Washington. I actually went to Bristol Bay first in 1983. And as far as I know, that, that program's been around for 70-odd years now. Is that right? Yeah, it started in, in uh, 1946. Um, and uh, And mm. there's now... Uh, three faculty at University of Washington, uh, uh, Tom Quinn, Daniel Schindler, and myself, who have major research programs there. And then uh, Curry Cunningham, who was a former student of ours, but is now a professor at University of Alaska, who uh, also spends much uh, most of the summer up there in, in our field camps. It's a spectacular place um, and one that uh, I know is super special to you and to all the faculty that are there. Um, you mentioned the work that you cut your teeth on. Why did the work that you grew up accumulating transfer so well into what you do with fisheries and with Bristol Bay in particular? Well, uh, fisheries and fisheries management is to, uh, at, at one level, at the biological end, is population dynamics. It's the study of births and deaths and survival what causes those things to change. And so, you know, I started out studying it in field mice. <laughs> uh, and then uh, it was just the time that uh, really computers were coming online. And that proved to be something that I uh, had uh, particular aptitude with. And so uh, uh, that, and that's proved, uh, proved, you know, I can really deal with all, all sorts of things. I mean, uh, the, the same kind of work I do is what is being used in the COVID pandemic. It's the instead instead of births and deaths of people, it's births and deaths of infected people and uh, and transmission of the virus. Um, I've been lucky enough in the, the, behind Bristol Bay. My other great fortune in life has been to work in the Serengeti in East Africa on the wildebeest populations, and uh, I've done some work on other things. But again, just transfer the same toolkits, studying of populations and their ecosystems. Um, so I, I got really lucky in sort of the, uh, the um, both what I've been able to work on and the tools that I acquired. All right. This seems like a good time to start diving into, based with that bedrock, uh, <laughs> diving into some of the claims that this uh, film Seaspiracy makes. Um, I've got some of my own. I know you've flagged certain things as well, but um, the one thing that you know stood out to me um, immediately was just the barrage of wildly inflated data that it was designed to shock and awe and bludgeon. Um, and it, it remained on screen for such a short period of time, you barely had any time to actually ingest what you're looking at before they barrage you with another thing, which of course just lends to being dazed and confused, um, which I think is the 
is the intent there. But uh, I mean, certain things I saw were like, uh, there was a graph that popped up for maybe two seconds that 99% of the halibut population is gone from the earth. Uh, 99%. Uh, I, I know you probably saw a dozen of these things. Let's dig into a few of the focus items that you found to be um, kind of unbelievable in, in this uh, production from Netflix. Oh, how, how shall I count the ways? Um, I mean, I, I think the, the, most, uh, the most flagrant was that no fisheries are sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. And that is just so contrary to anyone who knows anything about fisheries, um, that there are many fisheries that have been maintained for thousands of years and, uh, and, and, and lots of fisheries that are, um, have been sustained for, uh, for hund- hundreds of years that we've been able to document, uh, that we've been doing uh, studies for the last 15 years uh, showing, for instance, that uh, within the, uh, much of the world, North America, Europe, much of South America, some other places, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the abundance of fish is increasing, not decreasing. And yet, you know, they repeated this old, tired, highly refuted argument that all fish stocks will be collapsed by 2048. Um, you know, we know how to sustainably manage fisheries and, uh, and it is being done. And, and Bristol Bay stands out as, uh, you know, as, as really one of the shining examples of how a fishery can be sustainably managed. And it now has for thousands of years, the native peoples were there for thousands of years. Industrial fishing started 130 years ago. The stock is at record abundance. It's doing very well. The ecosystem is doing very well. Um, so that's, you know, that's just one of the many, uh, the many things that they put up that was just outrageous and totally not factual. Well, I, yeah, I think when you're starting to assess a, uh, production, you, you kind of try to find their, their baseline. And the baseline is, as you say, eating a fish means you are raping the seas. You are, uh, somehow advocating for slave labor you are polluting beyond comprehension and you are taking every last fish out of the seas but it's all predicated on this thing that they keep pumping over and over again don't eat fish and um of course the lineup that they have of folks is very one-sided it's pretty much entirely represented by sea shepherd paul watson is the uh gentleman who makes the claim that uh a sustainable fishery is a lie. Uh, I know from being on the ground in Bristol Bay and from spending a lot of time with you and your faculty that uh, how erroneous that is. But they keep kind of going from, uh, you know, firing from different angles. And, and yet the baseline of uh, no fishery is sustainable knowing that that's false, it's, it's kind of hard to latch onto anything and, and feel like there's any veracity to it. So, you know, moving on from that point, um, what about this idea that, uh, you know, the United States is, uh, complicit in, in this and that, um, you know, all coastal communities are in fact contributing to the demise of, um, the fisheries in general and as a, you know, a global population. Well, it's, 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 you know, um, I mean, a very interesting thing about it is they, you know, they have, they portray some of the most critical NGOs in the, in the world that have been most critical about fishing, particularly in this case, Oceana. Uh, and they, 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 they project them, uh, they put everybody in the same basket and say, oh, you're all part of this, this conspiracy to empty, empty the oceans. Uh, and it's actually been the most unifying thing. I mean, everybody in the fisheries world who knows anything about fisheries is, uh, is, 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 saying that this is all totally bogus and it's made some strange bedfellows at the moment of people that we've been arguing with uh for years um uh and uh, you know it's very you can 
let, let's you can take if you if you want to say that okay fisheries are in decline i guarantee you you can find dozens and dozens of fisher stocks that have been going down or that are low abundance and and essentially what they did is they and i don't have any idea what halibut they're talking about if certainly not true for pacific halibut and i i'm sure that atlantic halibut are not i don't know that much about atlantic halibut but they're not 99 gone um but uh they may be in some place largely gone uh but um you know you can go and you can cherry pick an, an example so for instance they they uh they, I, I as i remember i think they took uh uh Pacific bluefin tuna and just referred to it as tuna. Now, Pacific bluefin tuna is the one tuna stock in the world that is quite depleted and it needs better management. No question about that. But it is in no sense representative tuna stocks. It's very small. It's probably less than 1% of all the potential tuna in the world. Uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy for, for people who have no respect for good science to just go and cherry pick in a couple examples. And same thing, you know, with the, um, with the slave labor. Yes, there is slave labor in fisheries, um, but it's not a broad spread problem. We, you know, it's, 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 uh, seems to be confined to a relatively small number of fisheries. It's never been considered or uh, thought to be a problem in American fisheries. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it, as I say, it's a, it's a, it's a propaganda film. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my, uh, essentially, there's more lies per minute in that film than there is in a Donald Trump press conference. <laughs> it's just lie well, after lie after lie. Well, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it was difficult to get through. I got mm -hmm. I got to say, um, the, pro I think the problem really that I have with this is it, I feel like it's dangerous. You know, you get people so riled up and I, I think that the comparison to a, a Donald Trump press conference is, is kind of accurate. I mean, the, the former president was really good at boiling things down into tr very simple digestible terms. And that's exactly what this film tries to do. Eat fish equals bad killing the ocean. It, you know, so many people have glommed onto that. I mean, the, the Twitter sphere is blown up about it. Social media is all blown up about it. I've gotten tons of messages. I know you've get, gotten thousands more. Um, why do you think it's such a dangerous message to oversimplify a complex issue like fisheries and global fisheries? Well, I, there's, okay, I see, I see two dangers. One is sort of a, an existential danger, and it's contributing to this lack of faith in science. In the same way that Donald Trump contributed to the lack of faith in science over the over the COVID crisis, um, that uh, you know that if 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 all of these people who see this and say, well, look, all these all these scientists are you know who, who are saying these fisheries are sustainable, but but this movie showed us they're not, um, then we're just seeing a general decline in the faith in science in public policy, which is a, a very very serious concern. And the, the other, which is, I, I think, uh, sort of the, the specific environmental problem is these people, the, the, like Sylvia Earle, who featured very prominently, who, who has long advocated not eating fish, um, they never s consider where's the food going to come from if you don't eat fish and um, what's the environmental impact of that? And uh, this was brought home to me uh, one time. And actually, I remember exactly. It was January 2010. I was working in Serengeti National Park, wildebeest population. And uh, one of my colleagues there, who was the head of conservation programs for Africa, named Marcus Borner, he said, he, he said look, I'm a conservationist. Should I stop eating fish? And I said, well, Marcus, if you don't eat fish, what are you going to eat? And he uh he said, "Well, I'm I'm not a vegetarian. I would eat more beef, chicken, and pork." And uh, I started. It really changed my career to a great extent because I've started really looking at the environmental impacts of foods. And we've done the calculation that if you were to take all the ocean capture fisheries 
and replace them with beef, chicken, and pork in the same proportions as the, the, as the current diets, you would need additional area to grow the, the uh, to graze the, the beef and to grow the crops to feed the chicken and pork. And that would require all of the Amazonian rainforest, all of it. Uh, and, and so the question is, which would be more of a global loss in biodiversity, eliminating the Amazonian rainforest, because that's where most of the increase in crop production has come from, from tropical rainforest, some of it in Southeast Asia, but that's the area we're talking about, or what would, you know, or uh, eliminating all fishing. And certainly, if you eliminate all fishing, there would be, there wouldn't necessarily be more fish in the sea, there'd be more big fish in the sea. Um, and uh, there would be, you know, there's envi- There's no question there's environmental impacts of fishing, but the environmental impacts of not eating fish would be far worse. I I see the truth in that. And further, you know, we have maintained, um, we being the collective of folks that have worked on my films and um, uh, the, the folks that have advocated for Bristol Bay's fishery, that supporting that industry is in fact a form of activism eating wild saves wild because we know it's a regenerative fishery it's a fact and if you are supporting the jobs there that's a that is a sustainable way of making a living and you are going to demand that if you want that fish on your plate you're going to need the habitat sufficient for it to keep coming back to your plate so it is a form of pro-activism for the environment for really maintaining the last fully intact wild salmon system in North America, if not the world. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that the uh, idea that you are somehow contributing only to a deleterious cause by eating one particular food source, uh, in this case, fish, is you know bogus, like you say. So, going further, um, could you speak a little bit more to? I think um, just the, uh, the the bigger sense of what this movie portrays about the industry, as it there, there's you know a global conspiracy that uh, you know if you're eating fish, you're in on it. You're somehow contributing to these nefarious causes. You know people in the industry. You know I do too. Um, by by your experience with working with this industry, do you, do you see some sort of global conspiracy here? Um, and can you speak just a little bit more to their massive message of, you know, denigration to the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, th- the, pro- the main problem is it, it is not global. Everything is local. There are, you know, as we know, Bristol Bay and in fact, most uh, land and most Alaskan fisheries and in fact, most American fisheries are managed in a, in a sustainable way. Um, you know, there's an enormous number of laws that are enforced and you have to, you know, with the Endangered Species Act, the, uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Environmental Quality Act, and, uh, and it's, they're heavily re- regulated. Now, you, there are places in the world where fisheries are largely unregulated. And that, you know, and to the great extent, that's where the problems are. And so, you know, they go to a fishery somewhere in Southeast Asia and where there has basically been documented slave, la- slave labor and the, and the implication is this is a global problem. It is not a global problem. It's a particular problem in some places. And the same thing's true of uh, IUU fishing. It is not a global problem. It's it is a problem in some places. And there are there's been enormous amounts of of effort, successful effort at solving overfishing, at solving um, IUU fishing, uh, at, at at you know at solving discarding. Uh, all, all of those things we have made great progress on, and we've done it by governments working with industry, with science, with the academics, um, uh, and we, you know, we 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 know how to solve th- those problems, and we are solving those problems. Images are powerful, and um, you know, I know a little bit about that, and um, <laughs> they show image after image of bycatch being just sharks, dolphins purposes, turtles being discarded, and um, again, painting the picture that all fisheries are doing this and that all fisheries are bad in this way. Um, 
those images are hard to forget. And they, they do, a, I think, you know, a, a fair job of uh, imprinting your brain with these images. Can you speak a little bit to what's being done to try to combat uh, unintended bycatch, um, certainly in American fisheries? And, you know, what can a, a person at home, an average citizen, besides just completely stopping eating fish from their diet, what are things that we can do to um, make our voices heard or um, be a better advocate for a better way of fishing? Well, to a, to a great extent, individual action on things like that isn't going to make any difference. We really, this is where uh, governments or organized groups like NGOs uh, have had, uh, have had more, more impact. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, they, in terms of individual choice in what you eat, um, you know, in the, in the U S you can, you know, there, there are rating agencies, the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood watch program gives advice. <clears throat> Marine stewardship council uh, gives uh uh, rating and you can you know the things that are highly rated by those organizations are definitely among the best managed fisheries in the world. Um, so uh, and 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 they have quite strict criteria on about how much bycatch is permitted uh, and 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 all of those issues. So um, I mean my my advice is a if you have the option, which certainly you and I do, buy fish from someone you know. Um, you know, there are, there are fishermen who will sell you fish directly to you. You can talk to them, find out how their fishery works. Um, um, and, uh, or, uh, you know, use the rate, the rating systems that, that are, are, are out there. And most retailers in the U S now are getting pretty fussy about how, um, you know, what, what fish they will sell. And 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 increasingly so. And again, this is the irony: is uh, so you if you're concerned about the environmental impact of the fish you eat, you can get a lot of advice on that. Okay. If you go to the Safeway or to the QFC, you're not going to be able to get advice on any of their other food products. You know, you're not going to be able to determine how many animals died to produce the soybeans or uh, how many farm workers were poisoned in the process of growing the lettuce uh, or how much, how many, you know, how much slave labor was employed in the processing of some food. It's, fisheries has been subjected to much, much more scrutiny than any other food group. Never really thought about that, but that's really true. Um, you will get every piece of information you possibly can at the seafood counter, not necessarily so anywhere else in the grocery yeah. store. Um, and I would make a plug for, I think that's excellent advice. Um, you know your fishermen uh, wherever you are in the U.S., but if you are interested in Bristol Bay Sockeye, which is a fully regenerative food source and is done sustainably, uh, you could go to bristolbaysockeye.org. And um, they have a really handy little find your fish feature there to find in your area where you can support Bristol Bay sockeye. Um, so just to kind of put a wrap on that idea about, you know, things that are sort of out of our control in the rest of the world. Um, how, given that you we need on a bigger scale with NGOs and governments to really address these things like bycatch and overharvest and um where where do you think we are with that in terms of uh, U.S. policy toward that? And is there anything we can do to, you know, help our politicians and our leaders and our NGO folks know where we stand on that and, uh, you know, do better? Um, well, I mean, the U.S. is pretty proactive. You know, it's uh, they're now uh, getting pretty strict about a, a law that prohibits importing of fish that are caught in a way that doesn't meet the standards of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So a country that is not protecting marine mammals is not able to import um, fish to the U.S. I mean, I, I'm not not really on top of 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 how you know of that, but um, the. Uh, you know, I, I, that's, it's, 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 it's all on, ongoing. Um, um, 
gosh, I don't know uh, what to say. I did want one more thing to say about Bristol Bay and have to do with the theme of, of the, uh, you know, that as I say, the uh, Seaspiracy was a vegan activist propaganda film. And one of the illusions, I mean, I, I first, I, I mean, I, there's no question that a vegan diet generally has, a, has certainly has a lower impact on the global environment than a meat eating diet. Uh, so, uh, but the vegans are mostly under the illusion that animals do not die to produce their food, right? Because they're vegetables. Uh, but anyone who's ever harvested a field, and when I was in going to college, I spent two summer harv- summers harvesting peas in eastern Washington, and we'd go through and chop uh, a field. Uh, of peas. And in the process of chopping the peas, we would chop up rabbits, mice, um, uh, a fair, fair number of, 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 you know, of mammals. Uh, my son is a farmer. He farms 500 acres on Whidbey Island. And uh, he is, you know, in the process of combining fields to produce vegetables, uh, he has killed baby deer, um, a baby, uh, you know, hawks nests. Um, and there are, uh, there's, there's some work that suggests if you want to minimize the number of animals that die, you, instead of a vegetarian diet, you would eat a few large animals like a cow. Because you get uh, uh, the, the number, you know, there's never been really deep research on this, but there's no question that enormous numbers of animals uh, die in order to produce a vegetarian diet. And if you then take Bristol Bay in particular, you know, yes, in Bristol Bay, they kill sockeye salmon, right? And we eat them. But every one of those would have been dead within a month that they're all going to die and they're going to die a very gruesome death in when in when I mean I've got we got photos of having their eyes pecked out by gulls I've got pictures of of fish swimming around for days who half their head has been bitten off by bears um I think you'd have a hard case making that killing fish uh in the fishery is any more painful or less uh, or more cruel than what is going to happen to those fish a month later if we don't catch them. Now, that's not true for most fisheries, but for Bristol Bay, it is is definitely true. That, that's true. That's an excellent point. Um, that is a <laughs> terminal fishery. They're coming to the end of their life, and they're going to be uh, they're going to be passing on one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to reinforce that Bristol Bay's fishery is super unique. It's learned from the mistakes that the rest of the world, the lower 48, has made with their fisheries and salmon in particular, and it allows fish to get into the river system before it allows fishermen to Mm. harvest the numbers that they're supposed to get. So in other words, from my understanding, Bristol Bay always has an escapement goal that they must meet in order in order to allow fishing to happen in a commercial way. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's, 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 the, that's the, the essential part of the management system is always make sure enough fish get to spawn. Right. There's, there's another really big environmental factor that was something that you taught me um, that uh, I'm grateful for is most folks kind of automatically assume that if they're eating vegetarian only or vegan only, that um, they are somehow across the board making an environmental statement for the better, including carbon emissions. What do we know about Bristol Bay sockeye in terms of the carbon emissions needed to bring a sockeye to your plate versus the rest of the food chain, other food products out there in the world? Um, let's see. I don't, I don't have those numbers right offhand, but uh, Bristol Bay sockeye are pretty efficient uh, uh, because the fish swim to Bristol Bay. You don't have to go out in the ocean chase for them. You basically set your net out and they swim. They swim into it. I know that um, uh, that it, it takes about uh, each kilogram of processed fish in Bristol Bay uh, takes about two kilogram produces about two kilograms of carbon, which is certainly lower than many vegetarian uh, items in the in the vegetable diet. Um, so uh, it's pretty good. There are uh, there are some uh, 
more efficient fisheries, um, uh, sardine fisheries, herring, uh, mackerel fisheries that catch fish uh, very efficiently have uh, lower carbon footprints, uh, just much lower than most vegetables. Um, so, uh, but again, the Bristol Bay fishery doesn't use, compared to, to growing crops, doesn't use any um, uh, uh, fertilizer, doesn't cause any soil erosion, it doesn't uh, generate any um, significant acidifying compounds. You know, the, it's, it's, it's across the many dimensions of environmental impact, it's definitely better than uh, a, a plant-based diet. Um, and just for in comparison, uh, the, uh, uh, what's it called? The Impossible Burger, you know, which is a plant-based hamburger imitation, has about twice the carbon footprint of a Bristol Bay sockeye for the same amount of, pro of, of product. Um, so, uh, you know, don't get me going on plant-based plant -based fish and meat substitutes, you know. If you want to, you know, as one, one fellow I know says, if you want to eat a salad, eat a salad, uh, uh, not the product of a chemistry set, which is what all these fake meats and fake fish, fake fish are. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think that's a, another discussion for another day. I heard a, a pretty, pretty compelling argument on uh, uh, Sam Harris's podcast yesterday about um, getting people excited about alternatives to uh, terrestrial uh, industrial farms and, I think it's just super exciting. They didn't mention fish much mm. at all, not, not at all, really, um, in terms of being uh, deleterious. So um, we'll, we'll tackle that one another day. But um, I want to come back to Bristol Bay and, again, with your fascination with this place. Why is it so special to you, number one? Number two, why is it so unique for wild salmon to thrive there? And how, did that, how does that translate into an imperative to protect a place like this. Well, in in the American context, it's 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 first element of uniqueness is the intact habitat. You know, you have a habitat that is just designed to produce sockeye salmon, and it has not been really impacted by uh, by any human use. You know, whether roads, it's, it's really essentially intact. Um, the other thing that's not quite so unique is it, as you as you mentioned earlier, it has a really good fisheries management system that profited by lessons learned in the lower forty-eight. Uh, so, uh, and 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 the the other is that it has been, uh, if anything, a beneficiary of climate change so far, rather than a victim. So, uh, the, the, the warming that has taken place has generally increased the production of Bristol Bay, whereas it's definitely been deleterious for, say, lower 48 salmon. Um, and, you and, know, it, you know. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, go on, please. Oh, I, I, well, I, was I, say, say, I mean, the other fascinations is it's, for me, is it is just such a beautiful place. And, uh, and the people, you know, the, there's this diversity of people who, uh, some of whom have lived there for, families have lived there for thousands of years. Um, uh, and uh, and they're, you know, they are so tied to the place that it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. And, um, you know, and, and, and being a fishing community, it is, it is really... Um, it's just completely integrated with the ecosystem and with the, with, with the government agencies. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you talk about a place that has a good relationship between fishermen and manager. You can't, you know, you can't find a place that's uh, better than, than Bristol Bay. And it's, it's much nicer to work there in the fish world than to work in a place where the government and the fishermen hate each other, which is true in some places. <laughs> Well, there's also, you know, down here, we are iconic. We have several iconic species, salmon being one of them, but another is orcas, and um, they're struggling. Our, our local resident orcas are struggling here. And I've had lots of folks say, I, I won't eat salmon because it's harming all orcas. And clearly, that that's not the case in Bristol Bay. 
Well, it's not really the case down here either. Um, that uh, the evidence that the 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 the, the fishery for uh, for Chinook salmon is impacting uh, the orcas is uh, is not at all strong. It's pretty weak. The best uh, the, the 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 most and best most recent work suggests there really isn't much uh, relationship because the fishery is uh, a very very small part of the um of the losses the the biggest loss of chinook salmon for that would be destined to southern resident killer whales is northern resident killer whales um they have been doing very well they've been increasing from i think from they're up to 300 now and they eat a very high proportion of the chinook salmon that would get down to here um so, uh, I mean, I, I eat Chinook salmon that are caught in Washington state without thinking that I'm having an impact on the southern resident killer whales. And if you're really worried about it, there's plenty of Chinook salmon from Bristol Bay and elsewhere that, uh, that would never have the chance of, of, of getting to southern resident killer whales. Or if you buy, get fish from in-river fisheries from the, from the Indians, um, those fish have already swum past the killer whales. They're not going any farther. And those fisheries are, again, they're allowing sufficient escapement. So uh, there's no evidence that eating those Chinook salmon would be uh, impacting killer whales. Well, so at the time we've got left, I'd love to go back clear out uh, toward outer space here on the, the big impact picture that uh, Sea Spiracy makes that, um, you know, all fishing is bad and that by eating fish, you are um, destroying the fisheries. And also, like you said, that uh, fisheries are doomed to collapse in 2048. Can you give us the ma- your Ray Hillborn maxim, you know, maximum view here of what the fishery, the global fisheries uh, looks like in your perspective at this point and where we are currently and, you know, where we need to be or where we're heading in, in the next decades to come. Okay. And, and, uh, in the, the most the, much of the developed world, fish stocks are improving. Uh, they are on average about the level that we were, the management targets, um, which are typically designed around uh, uh, sustainable food production. Um, the, the concern and almost all the problems, I mean, there are certainly some problem stocks within the U.S. We've got some stocks that are, are overfished, uh, but it's, it's, it's a very small fraction. Um, but they, the half of the world where we don't have good data, which is essentially the tropical world, South and Southeast Asia, um, some Central America, uh, places as far as places like Brazil are, are, are of, of concern, where they basically don't have uh, effective fisheries management systems. The real challenge is to bring good fisheries management to those places. Uh, now, those places don't provide very much of the fish that we eat in the U.S. Um, and uh, so, uh, but so I, I think consumer choice isn't going to have a big impact there. This is where the, the bigger global community from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations to the gov- governments, uh, um, and, and those countries typically realize they need to up their game, uh, but they've got a long way to go before they really have an effective fisheries management system uh, in place. But I don't think there's really anything an individual person can do to promote that. So as a general rule, uh, Alaskan caught American caught seafood is doing a pretty good job of uh, taking care of the the resource and bringing it to your plate in a responsible way. Is that a fair statement? Yes, no, there's no no question. Okay, cool. And I would be remiss. I, we're going to start winding down here and getting into our bonus round here for in, in a moment. But I know there, you know, in the past there has been questions about um, the relationship with the fishing industry and the work that you do, and that has been soundly refuted. Um, I think that for folks that are close followers of Sea Shepherd or Greenpeace, they may have heard your name in the context that mm-hmm. somehow you are on the dole of the uh, fishing industry. Can you just clear that up for folks out there who may have heard that contextually and what it actually means 
knowing this this industry intimately and how that actually can be a benefit to your work. Sure. Um, yeah. So I have a research program with uh, half a dozen students and a half a dozen, maybe even more, eight or nine staff. Um, and we get funding. That program is funded by a range of sources, roughly equally split between uh, foundations, uh, uh, universities, private uh, private donors, and the seafood, the seafood industry. So we do receive a lot of money from the seafood industry. And that money doesn't come to Ray Hilborn, goes to the University of Washington. It's used to pay the salaries of our database manager in the case of the industry funding from Bristol Bay to pay for our field work. Um, and, uh, and I would argue that no one has a bigger stake in the sustainability of fisheries than the seafood industry, and they should be paying. Uh, but to uh, to the, uh, the 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 claims that my uh, that that this research I talk about is biased, the the key thing they're missing is these are not papers by Ray Hilborn. They are papers by typically twenty authors. Some of those authors work for Environmental Defense or the Nature Conservancy. Um, two of my most frequent collaborators are on the board of directors of those environmental groups. Um, and so this isn't, you know, the fact that all fish will be gone by 2048 is totally bogus, was not a Ray Hilborn result. It was a result of 21 people, including the first author of the paper that first argued they would be gone. So don't look at, look at who the authors are. Um, you know, if everybody there was an employee of the fishing industry, yeah, I'd be a little, I'd be a little more suspicious, but, uh, <laughs> um, um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, my, I get funding from, uh, environmental groups. I get funding from, you know, anyone who will pay for it. And when I discovered that the fishing industry would support, uh, research, well, actually I didn't discover it. It has been, they'd been supporting the, the program in Alaska since 1946. In fact, they initiated that program by saying to a, uh, then the dean of the College of Fisheries that, you know, we don't think the government's doing a very good job of this fisheries. Would you, you go up and look at it? And, uh, and since 1946, the Bristol Bay processing industry and now the Bristol Bay fishermen have been supporting the research program, which has developed and helped develop this very sustainable fishing system. Dollars to science. What a concept. Mm -hmm. Um, I thank you for taking the time to, okay. to share that. And I, I think that that kind of harkens back to the one size fits all eight second soundbite that mm -hmm. everyone has become accustomed to in their cable news that, you know, gosh, if there is some sort of funding tied to some sort of research, then it's somehow discredited. And that that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. So thanks for taking the time with that. All right. So we've made it to our bonus round. Everybody, nobody escapes without going through these three questions a little bit of fun using your imagination, uh, all based on the save what you love theme. Let's just imagine, if you will, that uh, you your house was burning down. You could get one thing out of the house, one physical thing. What would that be to Ray Hilborn? <laughs> Probably be my computer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the man is a slave to data. <laughs> yes. Well. Obviously, meaning getting the, the, the loved ones out, but uh, that, uh, that's fair enough, and I think that, that re registers yeah, with, yeah. with me anyway. I don't have any, don't have any pets, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just stuff, right? I mean, I can, you know, you can, uh, can't, I mean, um, yeah, um, but, you know, I mean, since I do essentially all of my work on my computer, and that's where I have all my photographs, and, uh, you know, rather than grabbing these photo albums over there, most of it's already on the computer. Although I have to say I have it backed up elsewhere, so even if the house, if I did lose it here, I would only lose a matter of weeks' work. I wouldn't lose a lifetime's work. <laughs> well, it's a one-stop shop, and yes, that mm -hmm. makes perfect sense to me. How about let's call it kind of more of your metaphysical house? Like, what are the two attributes about yourself, your life, uh, about you that make you that you would take with you? Well, I'd say one of my th themes is if it's not fun, don't do it. You know, and the day that I am not having fun doing my work, I'm going to find something else to do. <laughs> and uh, um, and that's one of the great things about getting in fisheries is it is it has almost always been fun and uh, met great people and uh, 
been to, to great places and uh, hope that we've been helping, uh, you know, helping the world uh, uh, preserve its environment and improve the nutrition of people. Well, I've been to a few barbecues on the back porch of uh, at, at the UW uh, Fisheries <laughs> Center there in, in Lake Aleknikik and it, it is fun. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. It's not all, you're not a glum lot. That is for sure. Um, cool. And is there anything that you would, you know, get rid of in your life that, that, that's superfluous that you would let burn in the fire? Oh, faculty meetings. <laughs> um, uh, I have to say that, I mean, if I never had to do another Zoom call in my life, I would be really happy. Uh, I mean, it's been great. You know, I've been really the transition during the pandemic for me has been really easy because I can do almost everything, including teaching online. Uh, but I, I will say that I it's 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 just not the same as as being there with real people and uh, uh, I find a you know a, an eight hour zoom meeting or even a six hour I don't think I've done eight six hour zoom meetings I am totally exhausted at the end of that whereas you know face-to-face meetings I've done much of my life been in six hour face-to-face meetings and it's not the same <laughs> uh you would not be alone in in that assessment of letting that burn in the fire. And and for that, I am so grateful for you taking the time out for an hour with us okay. to, to speak today about this. And uh, can't wait to see you again in person. Uh, Ray Hilborn, can you tell us where folks can dig into a little bit more about your work and follow along what you're doing? Um, I'd say the main thing is to go to our website. It's called Sustainable Fisheries, one word, dash, uw.org. Right, right now, all the Seaspiracy stuff is uh, front and center, but it's, it's really a go-to resource on sustainability around fishing. Thank you, Ray. That is it. Happy trails. We'll see you, see you this summer, I hope. Okay, yeah. Well, let me know when you're vaccinated and on Whidbey. Um, we can... Uh, we can cook a fish or burn a dead animal. <laughs> How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.